Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. We're starting a message series called The Bible for Grown-Ups today. Now, here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have been told that the Bible is the center of everything. That our relationship with God is based on what's written in there. And that everything that we need, a practical guide for how to live our lives, is found in the Bible. If you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you've heard that the Bible is this holy document. It's this religious document uh, that's sacred to people. Maybe you're not even a Christian, but you see it as like, if there was ever a ghost in your house, you know, you get the Bible out and you hold it up against the ghost. Maybe for you it's that. Maybe it's just a really great moral guidebook uh, that, that for you is like, it's just full of some good teachings that are just a good practical way to live your life. But whatever your perspective on the Bible, uh, we believe this is that, that understanding it is probably one of the key ways to understand what it's trying to, to, to teach us. And so knowing about the Bible is probably key to helping us understand what is inside of it. And so this message series that we're starting today is a message series for adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. Now, it's also for adults who were introduced to the Bible by adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. Okay, because there's, there's many of us who were raised in kind of church or Christian traditions, and we were exposed to the Bible at a very young age. How many of you guys, just for show of hands, you were raised in church and like the Bible, like you... Yeah, Sunday school, yeah. You were exposed to the Bible at a young age. So in preparation for this, I was kind of, I was trying to think about what is my first like memory of the Bible, or at least the, the first Bible that I kind of like remember as a kid. Now, I remember I got my first gift Bible when I was 12, and some of you guys probably had this experience. It was red, and uh, it had my name on it in gold at the bottom. That was my first Bible. But my first memory of the Bible actually precedes that. My first memory of the Bible goes back to my pediatrician, Dr. Lee. Now, I remember when I was a little kid, I mean, I'm talking like preschool, like I would go see my pediatrician, Dr. Lee, and as a child, you sit in the waiting room, and you're just looking for something to do, right? Like, if you're, like, if you're a teenager, uh, maybe even like college student, like, just so you know, like, we didn't have cell phones, and so we had to bring fun with us or invent ways to have fun, and so the doctor's office was the worst. You were always looking for the toy that you could play with that some other kid didn't have or that, you know, wasn't full of teeth marks or bacteria and just looked disgusting, or you'd go to the, to the book section at the pediatrician's office, and there's always a bunch of books to choose from. Now, I was never a fan of the Berenstein Bears. I thought they were boring. And so I would always skip past them uh, to try and find something fun to read. And there is this one book that was always at my pediatrician's office. Guys, why don't you bring that up? This is The Bible Story by Arthur Maxwell. Now, The Bible Story was actually a series of books that was written full of the stories of the Bible for children. And it was written in 1953. Okay, 1953, which means this. This book was 30 years old before I saw it in my pediatrician's office as a child. Now, just to be totally honest, as a kid, like, the Berenstein Bears and this book were equal, in my opinion. Like, they were both extremely skippable. I'm... They were so skippable, I was jumping right into Highlights Magazine. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how, like, I so didn't want to read either of those books. But this was my very first memory of, of the Bible. And maybe for you, this was just in every pediatrician's office I was ever in as a child. And what's crazy, this is just as a side note, when I had my kids and I took my kids to like their first, when I took Cameron to her first pediatrician visit, I kid you not, in the year 2002, 
this book was in her pediatrician's office. It is like, I don't know if like when you get your doctorate, your medical license, they hand it to you and they say, here's your license, you can practice medicine now, and here's your copy of Arthur S. Maxwell's The Bible Story from 1953. Go and treat your patients. You know, I, I don't know if that's how they do it or not. But that was my first memory. And, and I, regardless of whether you were raised in church or whether you were exposed to the Bible in your pediatrician's office, you know, every single one of us as kids, we are told some things about the Bible. As kids who are raised in church or maybe as kids who have parents who are just somewhat religious, we're told that the Bible is God's word, that it's true, that we should do what's inside the Bible. And, and th that's just like what, what we're taught. So we're told about the Bible, where our parents tell us that, our grandparents, our Sunday school teachers, our pastors, that's what we're told. The Bible is true, the Bible is God's word, and we need to do what it says. And as a result, our understanding of the Bible is based on things that we were told as children. Now what that means this, is that our understanding of the Bible is based on things that we've been told, not necessarily on actually reading the Bible. And so a perspective starts to develop in our lives as early as, as childhood, again, not from reading the Bible, just what we're told about the Bible, and that perspective kind of follows us and it sticks with us from childhood all the way into adulthood. You don't even have to be a follower of Jesus. If you're not a Christian here today, first of all, I'm thrilled that you joined us, uh, but you have a perspective on the Bible, and that perspective was based on things that you were told about the Bible probably at a very young age. We all have these childhood perspectives on the Bible that we carry into adulthood. Now, you may have been one of those children. You may be a person who actually believed the Bible. And then somebody pointed out what else the Bible says, right? Somebody pointed out the non-Sunday school parts of the Bible. Maybe somebody pointed out the stuff in the Bible that, like, curls your hair a little bit. You're like, oh, that's in there. Maybe you're a, a, a Bible person and you're all about it, but they're the parts of the Bible that, like, you want people to read it, but you're like, but don't, read, don't start there. Okay, just please don't start at that point of the Bible, right? You were exposed to some things in the Bible, and as a result, uh, the parts that we skipped over, but as a result, now you're kind of struggling to reconcile what's in the Bible with the world that you actually live in. Because the Sunday school Bible and the Sunday school faith that we were taught, it was great for when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, I loved popping open my kid's Bible and the stories were so fun and exciting and I loved hearing them. But then as a teenager and the things that I'm dealing with in school and the things that I'm dealing with in my body and all, you know, the things I'm dealing with in life start to happen. It's like, well, I'm not sure about that. And then you become an adult with taxes and relationships and all of those things. And the Sunday school Bible and the Sunday school faith they don't necessarily seem to be able to hold up against the world and the things that we actually live in. And the Bible from your pediatrician's office, it doesn't necessarily have the answers to the questions that adult life is asking. And it, or it doesn't necessarily have the answers to the questions that people in your life are asking. And that's a challenge as well. Like when you want to hold tight to the Bible until someone at work or someone at school asks you one question and you're like... Oh, my whole entire world is shattered right now because you asked me that. Or maybe the answers that you found in the Bible 
And they don't really line up with the answers that you wish were in the Bible. And they don't really line up with the answers that you wish or that you want to line up with the world we live in. And as a result of what you see in your life, what you see in our culture, and what you see in the Bible, you just don't necessarily feel like that the Bible, you can't reconcile the fact that the Bible is something that should be a thing that guides your life. Or, let's just put it this way, maybe you don't understand why you should trust the Bible. Why is it that we should put our our faith and our trust in this 2,000-year-old book. The thing is, I think, I think that the Bible is a lot like your grandma, okay? When you're a kid, your grandma is this, like, mythical figure. When I was a kid, my grandma, like, I loved my grandma. And you know why? Because every Christmas, a big box got delivered to my door with my name on it. And I opened it up and there were presents in it. And my grandma was this amazing mythical figure because every time my birthday rolled around, an envelope came by and I would open it up and there was cash money inside of it. And so my grandma was this mythical figure that delivered goodies to me. And so I, I loved my grandma. But then as I got older and I moved into adulthood, I started to learn, hear stories and learn more about my grandma. Maybe you've had the same experience. We learn about them and we hear about like their struggles, we learn about the things that grandma went through. Maybe we learn about some mistakes that grandma made. They're like, oh, snap, grandma. And, and then we start to learn about some struggles that grandma walked through. And we're like, wow, grandma. The strength and the, the resilience of, of our, your grandma. And all of a sudden, your grandma's not just this like Santa Claus figure anymore that you think is awesome because, you know, they deliver treats to you at Christmas and your birthday. But now... You understand your grandma's this rounded person as, as someone with, who's real. And, and as you begin to understand your grandma and know your grandma more, you can appreciate who she is and the life that she actually lived in a much different way than you loved and appreciated your childhood grandma. And I believe this, that the Bible is exactly like that. I believe that some of us have walked through life with a childhood understanding of the Bible. And as we've looked at this Santa Claus grandma Bible, expecting it to just deliver gifts into our lives. And then when all of a sudden life happens and, and it's not doing that anymore, we tend to kind of push it aside and write it off. But I believe when we understand it, when we see where it came from, when we understand why it was written, when we honestly see the historical path that the Bible, this document, this book that was written, actually walked to end up in a book on your lap or in your phone, I think when we understand more about it, I think we can, we can gain a better appreciation for it. And I'll be honest, I think we can, we can get a better appreciation for what is inside it. See, the truth is that the Bible has a story. In fact, I believe this, that knowing the story of the Bible may be as important to your faith or your trust in the Bible as the stories that are inside the Bible. And so this week, kicking off our um, the Bible for Grown Ups message series, I want to start talking about the story of the Bible so we can even understand why was it written? Where, where did it even start? Where did it come from? Why, why did this get documented and written down? And so it's interesting, just as we kind of dig into this, we're going to be looking at kind of the birth of the New Testament, which for followers of Jesus is just the heart of, of, of the Bible for us. And, and the story of the Bible, it doesn't really start at the beginning. Like, you don't, we're not just going to open up and be like, okay, Genesis is the beginning of the story of the Bible. That's not really how the story of the Bible begins. I think that the story of the Bible begins at the end of the middle. And so we're going to take a look at, at someone named Luke. 
Now, Luke was a doctor who lived in the first century. Luke was a, a follower of Jesus, and Luke knew a lot of the major players in that first century. He, he knew the Apostle Paul. In fact, he traveled with the Apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Um, we know that Luke knew some of the other writers of the New Testament, that he was probably connected to, to many of the disciples uh, who followed Jesus as well. And, and Luke, as this, this medical doctor, this scientifically trained mind, um, he did something that was pretty amazing. And he wrote the book of Luke from the New Testament. Now, we're going to take a look at this as a launching pad for understanding a little bit of why the Bible was written and what it really is all about. And we're going to look at Luke chapter 1. And the story of the Bible begins with this first century doctor who wanted to document the life of Jesus. And this is what Luke writes at the very beginning of this document that he writes, this biography, if you will. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Now, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. So Luke is really just kind of explaining, why am I writing this? Why is this biography of Jesus' life that is about to be read, why was this written? And the first thing we can see is this, is that it was written specifically for one person, a person named Theophilus. Now Luke calls him Honorable Theophilus. It, it may be that he was wealthy or somewhat powerful, that this was a person who was high up. We know Theophilus was a follower of Jesus because Luke says, I wanted to write this document for you so that you could be certain of the things that you already believe. So he has this belief in who Jesus is. He has a, a belief and a faith and trust in Jesus. And Luke says, I'm writing this to you because I want you to have a grasp on it. So I, I imagine that Theophilus was just this man who, who probably uh, brought Luke on, maybe hired Luke on to document the story of Jesus' life. Theophilus wanted an orderly, organized tale, an orderly, organized way to look through the life of Jesus. Because we can see what Luke says, there's already many stories that are being circulated. All of these things that Jesus did, all these things that Jesus taught, um, they're being spread word of mouth. Some of them have already been written down in other documents. And Theophilus just wanted, I want to know, start to finish. I just want to read this thing like, uh, like a biography, like a newspaper article. And, and what Luke does is this. Luke approaches it like a journalist. He doesn't just say, I'm just going to write down what I've heard. He says, I'm going to go interview firsthand witnesses. I'm going to talk to everyone I can who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus, who walked with Jesus. And after interviewing them, I'm going to write that stuff down. I'm going to compare stories and I'm going to compile it all into this one conclusive document so that Theophilus can be confident and certain of everything that he taught. So what that means is this, is that there's a couple of things that make this, this really very unique at least in this historical time. Like for us, you know, within, in our technological society, if, we, if something happens in our life, we can go write it in our journal. Beep, boop, boop, boop. We can type it on our phones to keep track of it. We can put it on our computer. I mean, there's a million ways for us to document life. I mean, shoot, you could, if you looked at Facebook 2,000 years from now, Facebook is probably going to be one of the greatest historical documents that they ever find because they get to peek into the lives of people from history and every single one of us contributed to that historical document, Okay. But in the first century, it was completely different. Histories like this were not, they just were not written in the first century. 
In fact, as it relates to ancient documents, I mean, stuff like this is very rare. One of the reasons historical documents were so rare, and it was rare that people would write stuff down, was that it was really expensive to write things on parchment. It was really expensive to put things down and to compile them into scrolls. Paper was not cheap. It wasn't easily available. Paper, ink, the things that it required. I mean, you couldn't just go to like Office Depot, get a ream of paper and a Bic pen. It just didn't work that way. And so the materials that it took to write were very pricey. Everything that was written had to be written by hand as well. It took a lot of time. And so even if you had the resources to write a document for yourself, you couldn't just go, you know, put it on the photocopier and, and just send it out or make it a PDF. Every copy had to be handwritten on that same expensive material. And so as a result, people just did not write stuff down. Regular people didn't just write stuff down. If you had money and if you had means, maybe. So that's one reason this is kind of interesting that Luke is actually documenting this stuff because it's not typical. Another thing that's interesting about, about what Luke sets up here is, is he, he tells us already that there's already lots of these, these stories about Jesus in circulation. There's already many tales being told about him that, that Luke is acknowledging right out of the gate that he is not the only one documenting these events. In fact, historically, there's four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and when Luke wrote his, we, we believe historically that Mark, the first Gospel that was written, was probably already being circulated. It was already passed around. Matthew as well, it's believed historically that Matthew actually used the book of Mark as a source and as a launch pad. And so there's, probably, there's already documents being circulated. And what's, what's interesting about that is that we think, oh, well, that's cool, no big deal. But it is a big deal because when it comes to ancient documents, uh, when it comes to these ancient histories, this did not happen. There were, there's almost no examples we have of ancient documents where multiple sources document the same thing. It just didn't happen. Most of our ancient histories are one book, one collection that tells the story of one thing. And it is very difficult to find another complete document that tells the story of the exact same thing. Extremely rare. And yet for this, for the story of Jesus, we know that even right then in that moment, when Luke was writing his, he's acknowledging that there are multiple documents flying around. So just, just some interesting background on the beginning of, of the New Testament being written. So we knew that Luke, um, he wrote this to document Jesus' life. He wanted to document who Jesus was, how Jesus lived, what Jesus taught. We also know this, that, that Luke didn't believe, Luke didn't know that he was writing the Bible. Okay, like Luke wasn't thinking in his head when he sat down at his desk Okay, I'm going to write the literal word of God, and it's going to be around 2,000 years from now, and so I better get this right. Could you imagine the pressure? Like, that's insane. But Luke had no concept that he was writing a holy Bible document. Luke was just writing a biography. Luke was just writing an article. Luke was capturing the story of somebody's life so that he could share it with one specific person to just confirm that person's faith. Now think about that. That's like, doesn't that like take some pressure off when you think about like the Bible that, that it didn't just, there wasn't like some holy scripture tree that grew and like down from that God handed down the fruit of the Bible and just popped down and like mankind pulled it down. It's like, ah, that wasn't it. It was a dude who had papers in a dirty 
room writing stuff down, just writing a story. Luke had no idea that he was writing a holy document that was for us. He was just writing it for someone then. So then that, that kind of begs the question, like, what was it that caused Luke and all of these other people who we know were documenting the story of Jesus, what was it that caused them to go to the expense of writing it down? Uh, we know there were multiple copies. I mean, historically, we have hundreds and hundreds of copies of New Testament documents. So we know that people were copying these things down and distributing them. What caused Luke and the other writers of the Gospels and of the New Testament to sit down and write Jesus' story? And I, I think that's a big question. Because we know this. We know that Jesus died on a Roman cross. We know, and not just from the New Testament, we know that from other historical documents, that Jesus was put to death on a cross by the Roman government. And we also know this, that when Jesus died, that what that meant for his followers was this, is that Jesus wasn't who he claimed to be. Jesus claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He claimed to be the person that God had sent to usher in this new kingdom of God. But when he died on a Roman cross, there was no more story. You see, the Jewish Messiah doesn't die. The Jewish Messiah becomes the king. The Jewish Messiah starts this brand new kingdom of Israel and kicks out their Roman oppressors and, and leads the people of Israel. When a Messiah dies, it proves that he's not the Messiah and the story's over. We know this because there were multiple people who claimed to be the Messiah in first century history. And they are, they are literally footnotes in history. They're stories. There's not multiple documents telling their story, like, like telling the story of Jesus. We know who they are because they're mentioned briefly. But like, what's funny is you don't know the name of any of these people who claim to be Jewish messiahs. Why? Because they all died. Because Rome squashed it. Every one of those guys died. And then Jesus died too. And when Jesus died, there was no story to tell. There's no story because there's no messiah. There's no story because when Jesus died, there's no Christians. Jesus wasn't who he said he was. All of his people, all of his followers scattered. They split up because the Messiah doesn't die. Look at, look at what Luke writes in his own story, right? The story he writes of Jesus' life. Luke acknowledges this fact. And he says in Luke 23, he says, Now there was a good and righteous man named Joseph. Now he went to Pilate, and he, who was the, the Roman governor at the time, and he asked for Jesus' body. This is after he, Jesus has been crucified. And then he took the body down from the cross and he wrapped it in a long sheet of linen cloth and he laid it in a new tomb that had been carved out of rock. Joseph took Jesus' body. He took it down for burial, clearly, because Jesus wasn't who he said he was. He can't be the Messiah. But Joseph said, I'm going to honor this teacher, and I'm going to take him down, and I'm going to prepare his body so that he can be buried. Look what else Luke tells us in, in his story of Jesus' life. A little bit later, a couple verses later. It says, as his body was taken away, talking about Jesus, the women from Galilee followed and saw the tomb where his body was placed. And then they went home and prepared spices and ointments to anoint his body. See, so the women of Galilee, they went home to prepare materials to embalm Jesus because Jesus was dead. What happened is that, what, I mean, I just want to ask, what happened that made Luke want to write this story down? 
What happened that made Luke want to document this, this man who claimed to be the Messiah but clearly wasn't but be, because he died? What is it that made Luke want to go to the expense and go to the time to tell a story about someone who clearly wasn't who they said that they were? What made Luke go interview all the eyewitnesses who'd heard this story of Jesus that he could find in order to get this story documented and shared? And this is the most important question that we need to ask to understand why do we have the Bible today and what is the purpose and the point of the Bible that we have today? Why did Luke write this stuff down? He wrote it down because Jesus rose from the dead. See, something happened. Something happened historically. Something happened in that city. Something happened that people could see, that people could talk about, that people could share, and that people could confirm that made Luke decide, I've got to write this stuff down because this is a story that has to be told. This is a story that has to be shared. And it was this, Jesus rose from the dead. And this is, man, grasp this, okay? Jesus' resurrection is not a Bible story. Jesus' resurrection is the story of the Bible. Jesus' resurrection is the catalyst of the New Testament. It is the seed from which the New Testament that we have today grew from. It's, it's what caused it. It's what inspired these men to write what they wrote about Jesus' life and, and to write the letters of encouragement to each other that Paul wrote to encourage churches to grow and to thrive and to live a life of following Jesus. You see, everything that Jesus taught and everything that Jesus did you don't have to be a follower of Jesus. You could look at all that, right? You could say, you know what? He was a good moral teacher. And even though the Romans killed him and he wasn't the Messiah, it's good moral teaching and there's some good practical wisdom in there. And, it, you know, he was, he was a good teacher. And, that, and it was all good. But when Jesus rose from the dead, everything he taught, everything that he did took on a whole new meaning. It took on all new shades of color when this man who died and lost all of his followers and the story was over was resurrected and rose from the dead. And now all of a sudden, you've got these people who are not only clamoring to hear the story, but these people who feel an urgency and a responsibility to tell the story. And because of the event of Jesus' resurrection, Luke and these other writers, they, they feel like this... That the life of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus needed to be captured and shared with others. And Luke, again, Luke wasn't the only one. Let's just look at the four Gospels, right? In the New Testament, the four Gospels, you could call them the four biographies of Jesus' life. Start with Mark. Mark is, is the oldest Gospel. It was the first Gospel that was written. And if you look at Mark, it's like the language that it's used. There's nothing flowery about the language of Mark, right? There's nothing like Scripture. It is just like... It's action, it's intensity, it's, it's quick, and it's fast-paced, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, a man's man wrote it, like a dude wrote this. And, that, and that's because Mark wrote that when Peter, Jesus' basically number one disciple, one of his closest friends, Peter dictated the story of Jesus' life to Mark, and Mark wrote it down. The reason it sounds so manly and so quick and so action-oriented is because, because it's literally the story of a fisherman. 
An illiterate fisherman who can't read and can't write, but knew that Jesus' story had to be captured and had to be shared because the context of Jesus' story for Peter was that he was a powerful king and that he was going to come in power and he was going to make things better with strength and action. And then you've got Matthew, which is the next gospel that was written historically. And Matthew was one of Jesus' followers. He was a tax collector. And Matthew's goal was not to, to speak to the power of Jesus and speak to the action of Jesus. But Matthew's goal was he wanted the Jewish people to believe and to understand that Jesus was the Messiah that Jewish scripture in the Old Testament had promised was going to come. Matthew desperately wanted Jewish people to know that Jesus was who he said he was. So the Gospel of Matthew is full of the, of the same stories, but it's also full of Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament scriptures that a good Jewish person could read and say, well, wait a minute, I grew up reading this Jewish scripture, and you're telling me that Jesus was the conclusion that Jesus lived out this prophecy, that, that, that everything that was promised in the Old Testament, that Jesus lived it out. So Matthew's goal, the context that he had for writing his biography of Jesus was so that Jewish people would understand. And again, like they didn't write the Bible. Mark and Matthew, they weren't writing a document that was going to live for 2,000 years. They weren't writing Holy Scripture. They had a specific context, a specific goal for writing what they wrote to the people who were there then. They weren't writing to us. Everyone who wrote Jesus' story had a context for writing it then. 2,000 years ago for those people, not for us today. But then you jump ahead to John. John was also one of Jesus' closest disciples. And, and if you look at, at Mark and Matthew, they were written kind of in the early decades after, after Jesus' life, fairly close. But John was just a teenager. He's just a kid when he was a disciple of Jesus, when he was following him around. And, and, and that was about 30, Jesus died in about 30, 33 AD. John didn't write his biography of Jesus until around 90 or 95 AD, which means this. John waited 60 to 70 years to write down his biography, his story of Jesus' life. That means John grew up. <clears throat> he grew up watching the church start. I mean, he saw the church begin in the first century. He saw it expand. He saw people sharing and telling these stories of Jesus. He saw people sharing their faith with, other, with, with Roman citizens, people who weren't even Jewish anymore, and he saw people becoming Christians, and he saw these stories of Jesus' life being shared and spread, and he saw the questions that people begin to ask as this new faith began to develop. And he saw the issues and the struggles and the challenges they faced in a, in a Roman culture, in a Roman society that was hostile to Christianity. And he saw the struggles they faced as, as Roman culture pushed against Christianity and fought against it. And, and John, 60 to 70 years later after Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, when he writes this biography, it's, it's so cool. He actually writes his purpose for writing his story. And he says this in John 20, verse 30. He says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. This is a, a prologue almost at the end of the book of John. And he says, but these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I wrote this 
This was written 60 to 70 years later because I believed a, a, a new document, a new story, a new perspective needed to be written because I, I thought it was important for you to be able to continue to believe in what you had been taught, to continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he lived and that he died and that he rose to life and that by believing in him, you would have life by the power of his name. It's almost as if when John wrote this, that John's context was to see this expanding church. This church that started in Judaism and, and expanded beyond the, the Jewish faith into, into Gentiles, into to people who worshiped Roman gods and pagan gods. And, and he saw these people coming together as they began to be followers of Jesus. And he saw their struggles and their challenges and their questions. And at the end of his life, John believed this, that, that a new story needed to be written to fill in the gaps of maybe the other documents that were existing at the time because he wanted something that could, be, that could just be the conclusive way to tell the story of Jesus. He wanted to set forth the essential truth of Jesus' life for people in the first century so that, they so that they could know and ensure that the truth of the gospel is articulated in a way that the entire world could understand. John's context for his book was not just Jerusalem. It wasn't just the people in that city or in that region. John's purpose in seeing the church expand for decades was to communicate to the entire world. And what's amazing about the story that John wrote is we, we can see that in some of the things he said. John 3.16, so simple, such an essential truth. God loved the world so much that he gave his son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but would have eternal life. It also means this. Just what John's saying, it means this, that if John, if this book were the only book of the Bible that you had, that it would be the only book of the Bible that you need. The story of Jesus is the story of the Bible. The story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection is the inspiration for the holy document that we talk about every single week, every single Sunday. It all began and it ends with the fact that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, and that Jesus rose from the dead. If there's no resurrection, there's no Bible. If there's no resurrection, there's no people willing to give their lives for the, for the truth of the gospel or the story of the gospel. If there's no resurrection, there's no Compass Church. There's no 2,000 years later people talking about who Jesus is and what he did. Because it encapsulates the story of Jesus' life, Jesus' death, and Jesus' resurrection. So just prologue, okay, just as I kind of wrap up. Let me give you a prologue to, to all of this. So these gospels, these documents are written and copies start to be made and they start to spread and people start to, to say, this is amazing, the story of Jesus. And they begin to believe it and they begin to see transformation in their lives and they have to share it. So they tell other people that they begin to copy these documents. 
They begin to get the materials and to, to translate it and to copy it. They translate it from the original language into other language. We believe that Matthew, because it was to a Jewish audience, it's likely that it was written in Hebrew. It's translated to Greek so that people who only read Greek can read that. And as it's translated and as it's copied, it begins to spread. And it spreads throughout the, the, the ancient world around the Mediterranean Rim, and as, as these copies of these stories about Jesus begin to spread, so too does Christianity, so too does the faith, and it spreads from, you know, a hundred people on the, you know, the, a couple weeks after Jesus is resurrected to thousands of people, to tens of thousands of people, to hundreds of thousands of people, until Christianity becomes this thing that is spreading all throughout the Roman world and the Roman Empire. Now, Christians, I mean they're not necessarily looked at as a super positive thing in the Roman Empire either because the, the Roman government was great if you wanted to worship other gods. They had no problem with that at all. As long as you paid tribute to Caesar as Lord and paid tribute to the Roman gods. And it could just be a little bit, but, but if you paid tribute to Caesar and the Roman gods, you could worship any way you wanted. But this new sect, this new religion of Christians, they wouldn't acknowledge Caesar as Lord because only Jesus was their Lord. And so the Romans were skeptical of Christians, and so as a result, Christians became like other. They were, they were weirdos. Okay, the, the Christians were religious weirdos in the Roman world. They just didn't, they wouldn't do the things to fit into the culture. And you know what happens to weirdos? Weirdos tend to get blamed for things when things go wrong, particularly in a, in a, a very spiritual, a very supernatural culture like Rome was. So what would happen is this, is that if there's a bad year of crops, if there was flooding or drought, then the gods, the Roman gods, were angry. So who are the Roman gods angry at? They must be angry at these Christians who won't honor them, who won't pay them tribute. So Christians began to get blamed for everything. And as they were blamed for everything, persecution began to happen. This is interesting. Roman historian Tertullian, he writes this. This is a quote. He says, if the Tiber rises too high or the Nile too low, the remedy is always feeding Christians to the lions. Things are going bad, feed Christians to the lions. We've got to make, make good with our gods because the Christians aren't honoring them. Several hundred years later, Emperor, uh, Roman Emperor Diocletian, he actually formalized and made into law Christian persecution. He decided enough was enough that just legally Rome was going to wipe out Christianity. Christianity became illegal in Rome. And that meant that every Christian document that could be found was to be gathered up and burned. And if you owned Christian documents, if you owned Christian literature, some of these documents we've been talking about today, if you owned copies of Luke's story of Jesus' life, or if you owned copies of any of the letters of Paul and you were found with that, not only would those documents be gathered and burned, but you and your family would be put to death in this legal, formalized persecution. And do you know what the Christians in that era did? They gathered up as many of these, their copies of the stories of Jesus as they could, and they hid them, and they protected them, and they cherished them to try and protect them from being burnt. The fact that we have any copies of these ancient documents is a miracle considering that Rome tried to stomp them out completely. Why, why did these Christians put their lives at risk to protect these documents, to protect these stories about the life of Jesus. Why would they do that? And they did it because they were confident that these documents told the story of something that happened on earth. Something 
happened. And as a result, followers of Jesus, hundreds of years later, were willing to put their lives at risk to protect the story that had been handed down. Not a Bible, wasn't a Bible yet, just the stories of their Lord and their Savior, of the man who lived, who died, and who raised from the dead as proof that he was who he says he was and that they could follow him and that they could trust him with their lives. That's the story of the Bible. And the story of the Bible begins is initiated by the story of Jesus. The book that we talk about every week originated because of the resurrection. It survived to this day because of people's belief in his resurrection. It's not a collection of children's stories to sit in a pediatrician's office. It's, it's a collection of real historical events that people witnessed, that they saw, that they talked about, and that they wrote down. And that is still transforming people's lives 2,000 years later. That's the Bible. And there's so much more to talk about. And we're going to do that next week. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.